that flows through here of joy. And I'm going I'm to say that joy is a pervasive sense of well-being that resides below your emotions. It's deeper than your emotions. Emotions of happiness or sadness can be layered on top of joy, but joy is like the deep water beneath the surface of the sea. That water is always calm in spite of the circumstances. Joy is that pervasive, deep sense of well-being that I'm safe in God's universe. Now, when you think about what Jesse just said, there is a joyful effect of encouragement. I want to introduce you to a guy named Nick Vujicic, and uh, here's his son. Nick was born with a unique uh, syndrome called Tetra Amelia syndrome, born without arms or legs. Only thing that remotely resembles a foot is a little thing on his, a little kind of appendage on his left thigh. And when he was born, he was, he was uh, I mean, it, it was so painful to his mom and dad, they, they, w- they wouldn't look at him for a little while. Mom and dad then, then came around and they realized that precisely because of his handicap, he would have a very unusual effect on others in his life. Today, Nick surfs. He uh, plays golf. Uh, he has spoken in 44 countries uh, around the world. He has a remarkably uh, resilient, effective life. One of the most amazing YouTube clips I've ever seen is Nick speaking to a ma- prisoners in a maximum security prison. And he operates his wheelchair with his little foot that comes off of his, off of his leg. And uh, he operates that, goes up to a table. He come, he, he's able to kind of walk off of that table and sit on this table or stand on this table. And he speaks to prisoners. And this YouTube clip I saw was, was remarkable because at the end of his talk, he said to these prisoners, I want to give you a hug. Now, Technically, I suppose you'd say he can't give anybody a hug because he doesn't have any arms. But one by one, these prisoners came up to Nick and they, and, and they hugged him and he kind of scrunched his neck around them. And as you look at the YouTube clip, every prisoner moves away from that encounter with tears. Nick is the quintessential encourager. And Nick's philosophy is, look, if if I can live a ridiculously full life, then you can as well. Uh, our, our best encouragement often comes not through our successes, but it comes through our pain. I think Nick, Nick models this in a really amazing way. You, you think about somebody who's got a steady stream of, of victory after victory after victory, and they start encouraging you, and you think, I, I'm not sure I can relate to you because here you are ridiculously successful, and I'm not sure I can relate to all of your successes. So I, I'm, I'm not really encouraged by all the successes that you're telling me about. But when somebody like Nick, who has no arms or no legs, encourages you, you automatically feel safe in his presence. You automatically feel as if um, I, maybe I can relate to this guy. Maybe my life is not so limited as I thought it was. Nick's become the quintessential encourager. Now, Paul is in a similar place. Paul is a person with a handicap. Paul says, I got a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was, but that was some form of handicap for the Apostle Paul. Moreover, when Paul writes this, Paul is writing this from within a prison cell. 
And yet, who's the one doing the encouraging? It's, it's the Apostle Paul in this section encouraging the Philippians, encouraging them toward a, toward a joyful life. You know, a lot, of, a lot of your Bibles probably say that this section, uh, verses 3 through 11, is thanksgiving and prayer. That's, that's the title that's usually put, the editors put over this section of Paul's, Paul's epistle to the, to the Philippians, thanksgiving and prayer. It's not entirely accurate. Because what Paul is actually doing is reporting his thanksgiving and prayer to the Philippians. He's saying, guys, this is how I thank God for you. This is how I pray for you. And so I think we can, we can see this, uh, these first nine verses in Philippians as an example of how to encourage a friend. And we're going to look at it that, that way this morning. And what I'm going to see is four dimensions of encouragement that come from these nine verses, verses, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. First one is this. We, we look backward. And if you want to encourage a friend, you look back and you express gratitude. You look back and express gratitude. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul begins by recounting their relationship history. Now, you think about all relationships. They pretty soon develop a relationship history. You have a best friend, you got a relationship history. You got a friend that you've known for a year, you have a relationship history. What Paul is doing is he's thinking about his relationship history with the Philippians that's about 12 years old when he writes this, this epistle. So let's, let's, let's think about why he would be thankful about that. Remember that Paul and his team are in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They want to go south, the doors are closed. They want to go north, the doors are closed. So they go west. And they end up in the seaside town of Troas. While Paul is in Troas, he has a vision, he has a dream. In the dream, this man from Macedonia uh, appears to him and he says, come on over here. Now, Paul's in Asia, going over there meant going to Europe. So, uh, this is a big deal. Macedonian man says, you guys over there, come on over here. We need you over here in Macedonia, over here in Europe. We need your help. So, they sailed from Troas to Neapolis, the the seaport town for Philippi, and they walked the nine miles into the city. The ruins of the city are up on the screens. This was a big, bustling, booming metropolis back in those days. It was the leading city of Macedonia. And so they go there, and I I can imagine them standing on the streets thinking, the Macedonian man didn't tell us where to go in Macedonia. We're in the leading city, but what do we do now? All the people are going by in the street. Like, is the Macedonian man going to walk up to us on the street? Well, they wait there a little while, and, and they say, okay, there's no synagogue in Philippi, so let's go down to the river, because that's where people gathered, Jewish people gathered for prayer. So they get down to the river, and they see a cluster of people gathered there for prayer. Now, imagine you're that cluster of people gathered for prayer, and Paul comes. You think, wow, a trained rabbi from Jerusalem shows up in Philippi, and he's going to lead us in a Bible study. Amazing. Imagine you're out in the wilderness. 
you're lost, you're cold, you're hungry. You see somebody coming down the path. It's bare grills of man versus wild. And you're thinking, fabulous. We're glad you came. Paul's presence at, right there at, at this little worship time by the river must have been an, an astonishing experience for these, this little cluster of worshipers who now are uh, receiving a, an amazing study. Now, uh, Lydia, who's there, manufacturer's representative of a cloth company in Thyatira, is in Macedonia. She opens her heart toward Christ. Her family opens their hearts toward Christ. And then crazy things start happening in Philippi. A slave girl is released from her demon possession. That gets Paul and Silas into big trouble. They're put in jail. They're in the inner stocks of the jail. They're beaten up badly. Earthquake rips through the place. Jail doors open. And the jailer starts to commit suicide. Knife to the gut, beginning to shove the knife inside the gut. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Roman jailers would do that because punishment for escaped prisoners was a fate worse than death. He's taken this thing into his own hands. I'm going to commit suicide, he says. And Paul shares the gospel with him. He comes to Christ. His family comes to Christ. So now we've got a, a church in Philippi. And as Paul is thinking about their relationship history, um, I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking that he, he thinks about what a great church this was. It was racially diverse, Jew and Gentile. It was socioeconomically diverse. We've got wealthy, Lydia, and working class, the jailer. And it's, it's culturally diverse. We've got people from different continents who are now part of this church because Luke stays behind, and Luke now becomes the shepherd for this fledgling con congregation. Paul is thinking about the relationship history, and he's thinking, man, I am, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for how God moved. We took a risk to go to Philippi. Didn't know anybody there. And God brought us together in his supernatural power. That's why I think Paul is thinking, guys, we got an amazing history to our relationship. I'm thankful when I think about you guys. I had a similar experience this past week. Uh, a, a friend of mine who I got to know in 1983 wrote me an email. And he says, is this, is this your email? This, this Rod McElvain that I knew back in 1983, is this your email? I said, yeah. He says, I, I want to I reconnect. So we got together on gotomeeting.com, and we spent about an hour together. And in the last 10 minutes of the conversation, we started reciting our relationship history. Do you remember this person? Do you remember how the Lord worked in this situation? I came away from that conversation feeling incredibly joyful over what God did in a relationship that I really didn't remember all that much about 30 years ago. All relationships have histories, and Paul is meditating on this history. So that's why Paul is saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always with every, in every prayer of mine for you making uh, my prayer with joy Notice specifically what he says, because of my partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So when Paul thinks about the relationship history, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about partnership in the gospel. Well, that means we've got to define 
what the gospel is. If he's thankful for their partnership, we've got to define what, what the gospel is. Now, I've often said this at Grace, that the gospel is like a seed and a tree. It's like a seed and a tree. The seed of the gospel is the gospel message that Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. The seed of the gospel message is Christ died on the cross for our sins and He rose from the dead. That's incredibly good news. That's the cross. But that's not all there is to the good news. Because the tree of the gospel is all the life that flows forth from that message. So when Jesus talks about the good news before the cross, He's talking about the life of God that flows forth from the person of Christ. The tree of the gospel is our ongoing, abiding love relationship with the risen Christ. The tree of the gospel is living in His kingdom fullness right now. The tree of the gospel is living in the fullness of the Spirit. It's abiding in the presence of the risen Christ. It's enjoying our Abba Father. It's living in the existential presence of the triune God. That's the tree of the gospel. When Paul talks about their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, he's not talking about the seed, the gospel message. He's talking about the tree. What he's saying is, we lived in the abundant overflow of that gospel message. All the benefits of knowing Christ, we have enjoyed that together. We've enjoyed the fullness of the Spirit. We've enjoyed abiding in Christ together. We've enjoyed our fullness in Abba Father together. We've enjoyed the life of God together. The seed brings us into the relationship. The tree is the enjoyment of the relationship. And Paul is saying, uh, in view of our participation, our partnership, and that experience with God from the first day until now. Now, <clears throat> let's pause to think about this uh, for <clears throat> a moment. When you have a shared history, you've got a natural opportunity for closeness. However, enjoying that closeness is a discipline. Here's a, a couple, John and Julie Gottman. They um, do research on marriage. And John Gottman said this um, in a recent um, book that I read. He said that um, couples who were in the process of marital breakdown tended to emphasize the negative. Now listen to that. He said couples in the process of, of marital breakdown tend to view their relationship in the negative. Everything's about the negative. That comment just shows a big picture of negativity. That look you gave me, big picture of negativity. Everything is subsumed under a negative idea. He said, on the other hand, uh, couples who are in the process of relational flourishing have a big idea that is positive. So look back on their, on their marital history and they say, you know, that time we went through back then really painful, but look what God brought out of it. That experience that we went through that was really hurtful toward me, I'm not minimizing the pain, but you know what? God used that to humble me and bring us to a better relationship. Gottman, who's done, relation, uh, he's done um, studies on marriage for the past like 40 years, says, if there's one thing I know about couples, is that couples who put a negative spin on their relationship history 
tend to be in pain. Couples who put a positive spin on the relationship history move toward flourishing. And Gottman extracted from that the idea that healthy couples, healthy couples, build a story of positivity in their relationship. He says, this is a discipline. It's a discipline that if you want to have a good marriage, you have to apply this discipline. Now, here's the point. Whenever you have a friendship, you are responsible for how you craft the story of your friendship. You craft a negative story, that friendship will devolve. You craft a positive story, and you're going to get joy that flows out of those memories. Listen, could, could, could Paul have crafted a negative story about his time in Philippi? Oh, yeah. Paul could have remained angry at the Philippian jailer. You beat me with rods. I'm mad at you. I still bear the scars of those rods on my back. I don't care if you came to Christ. I am angry at you. He could have done that. Uh, could Paul have embraced an attitude toward the city for being racially insensitive to Jews? Yes, he could. There was no synagogue there. There were synagogues all over the ancient world, not in Philippi. Maybe he could have, he could have copped an attitude that said, I'm mad at you guys, you Philippians. Paul could have railed against the people of Philippi for trafficking women because the slave girl was, uh, was the victim of human trafficking. Paul could have taken any number of negative parts to his story in Philippi and said, it was bad, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. He didn't do that. Instead, what he did was he chose to picture the positive story that God was writing in his relationship with the Philippians. You have to do that if you're going to encourage a friend. You remember the good parts of your relationship history. Over the holidays, I was with, uh, we were with our son and daughter-in-law and our grandson in North Africa. And my, my son uh, made a, a small statement that, that I, I was so grateful for. He really honored me. And my son Jared said, Dad, um, we have an incredible family. Wow. And so I'm thinking, tell me more. I want to hear about this. He said, we have a credible family. It's big, and it's unified. And it all goes back to you and mom. Now, those of you who know our family know it was far from perfect. And we went through some pretty dicey times. What did Jared just do in that statement? He saw the relationship history in our family from the vantage point of the positive and what he said to me was profoundly encouraging as his dad. I was grateful for that. I was grateful for that. Let's go back to Paul. It's precisely what Paul is doing in verse 3. I'll read it to you again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He is filled with gratitude. All remembrance. Everything gets filtered through this big story that God is writing. He remembers the past. He, rem he expresses gratitude, and he encounters his joy. Let me give you another, another story. I'm with our good friend, Leo Tavuada, who is our partner in Cuba. 
And Leah was up here in Bartlesville for uh, about a week, short week in December. And Leah and I were at Painted Horse in downtown Bartlesville. And we were just finishing up our meal when Leo says, Rod, I need to tell you something I've never told you before. Now, when somebody says that, you drop everything and you listen. And he says, I, I need to tell you what it was like to meet you for the first time. Huh, okay. Tell me. He said, um, in 2003, uh, my wife and I were desperately poor. I mean, we could not even afford basic necessities like clothing, like, like food. We, we, were, we were as poor as, as you could possibly, possibly be. And he said, um, I accepted a translation job with this, with this group from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, having no idea what would happen there. He said, when I, when I arrived and looked at you, I did a double take. He said, you looked exactly like my mentor, Pastor Abel and Holguin. He said, you looked like him. Your voice sounded like him, without the Spanish, obviously. He said, and when I was assigned to be your translator, he said, I, I, was, I, was, I was amazed. I had lost my mentor. My mentor moved from Hogin to Havana, lost him, lost him. And now I was assigned, I was assigned to you. And he said, throughout, throughout that whole week, you treated me with such kindness and dignity, and you made this very impoverished person feel like he was whole again. He said, that, that profoundly touched me. I said, well, Leo, let me tell you what I was thinking during that time. What I was thinking was that as, I, as you were telling me your story, um, I'm sitting there, and it's not an audible voice, but it, it is as if God is saying to me, Grace Community Church needs to support Leo, bring him out of poverty, and equip him for ministry. And over the past 13 years, God has done far more than we could possibly have done in Cuba because Leo is a man of integrity, a hard worker, and exceptionally gifted. So what are we doing as we're sitting in the painted horse? We're reviewing our relationship history. I'm encouraged. He's encouraged. And I'm thinking, wow, this, this, is, this is awesome. What I'm saying to you, if you want to encourage a friend, honor your relationship history. Find out what's good in that history. Celebrate that. Talk about that. Encourage somebody else based upon that. Now, you may, you may be saying, that's, that's really not me. I'm not good at that. Encouragement does not flow forth from my lips very well. That's not my personality. And what I would say to you is this. This is a spiritual discipline. It is a matter of character. You do this because this is what followers of Jesus are commanded to do. It's the pattern of those who follow after, after God. Now, here's the second way that you can encourage. First dimension is backward. You look back. Second dimension is forward. You look forward. If you want to encourage a friend, you express confidence in their future. Here's this amazing verse. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Now, 
I memorized this verse shortly after I became a Christian. This is like one of those verses that, you know, you, you come to Christ and you memorize this particular verse. This verse is a, has been a real lifeline to a lot of people. I will tell you that it's very controversial. It's very controversial. And the reason why it's controversial is because of the question, what is that good work he's talking about? What is that good work? I have talked to some people who says, say that good work does not refer to your salvation and your spiritual growth. That refers to Paul's financial gift. Philippians was a thank you letter. Paul's referring to the financial gift. Remember what happened. Epaphroditus brings a financial gift from Philippi to Rome and knocks on Paul's prison door in Rome. Paul's living in, in his own rented quarters. He's in, under house arrest in rented quarters. He hands, he, he knocks on the door. It's Epaphroditus from Philippi. Epaphroditus hands him a financial gift. What a godsend. I mean, he, he's in prison. I doubt he can work even as a tent maker. He, he's, he's needy financially. Epaphroditus hands him this gift, and Paul's thinking, oh, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this provision. Epaphroditus then becomes sick. He almost dies. I envision Paul taking care of Epaphroditus in his jail cell, nursing Epaphroditus back to health through prayer and through kindness. So some people say, well, the good work is their gift. So what Paul is saying is he who began this good financial work in you will take that money and multiply it into the day of Christ Jesus. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about the good work as a financial gift. Other people will say, well, the good work is the gospel message. In other words, what they're saying is he who began this good work of sharing the gospel message will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. More and more people will come to faith in Christ. Again, I don't think that's what he's talking about. What he's talking about in the good work is the sum total of your encounter with Jesus. Remember, eternal life starts the moment you come to Christ. You come to Christ and you have eternal life, John 5, 24. You have eternal life as a present possession, present tense, present experience. What Paul is saying is, the one who began the good work in you of your eternal life is going to bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. God started it. He was the catalyst. Jesus is shaping it right now. Therefore, He will bring it to completion. Now, <clears throat> it takes real courage to embrace this. I know some Christians who do not embrace this. They run into a bad patch in their relationship with Christ. And during that bad time, they think, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if God's committed to me. I don't know if God cares about me anymore. It's doubt. It's faithless doubt. And because of that, they grow discouraged in their walk with Christ. They silently rip, them, rip, rip into themselves with with negative self-talk. There are others who cooperate with this truth, and they encounter real growth. Um, let me paraphrase this. The God who began the good work of salvation and growth in you is going to continuously work to bring it to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. And one day Jesus will visibly celebrate that work that happens in His day 
the day that he returns. This is a phenomenal promise. So here's Nick Vujicic again. And here's one of the things he often says. God is using my life as just one example of how God can use a man without arms and legs to be his hands and feet. In other words, what he's saying is, yes, I have lots of limitations, but he who began a good work in me is going to be faithful to bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. So if you know a friend who is going through a setback, you, you use that concept to encourage them. Look, he will bring it to completion. There's a future for, for you. Uh, when our two boys were struggling, um, Cindy and I clung to this verse. And then something really cool happened. We had a friend who came alongside and was willing to believe this verse for our boys. So here's how it happened. One day, he shows up at my office with four citrine gemstones. I didn't even know what a citrine gemstone was at that point in time. I'd never even seen one before. He handed, four, handed me four citrine gemstones. And he said, I'm giving these as a token of God's promise to your boys. I know that your boys have a relationship with Christ. I know that your boys are not walking with Christ. And I'm giving you these four citrine gemstones as a promise from God that God is going to do a good work. I don't know if he used Philippians 1.6, but it was entirely consistent with Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. So, fast forward four years, my youngest son turns around. Fast forward 10 years, my oldest son turns around. And Cindy... Um, prepared those citrine stones into a necklace and gave them to our daughters-in-law. And our daughters-in-law wear those necklaces as a reminder of God's promise to us when our boys were not going through the greatest of times. Now, I look back on my friend handing me those four citrine stones, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do with these? He said, just hang on to them. And just know that I'm praying for your sons, and I believe God has told me that they are going to turn around. He was believing for me as a believer priest. My boys, thankfully, have married so well with uh, wives who are thoroughly committed to Christ. And those four stones, um, I, I cannot tell you what the encouragement those were at the time and what they still mean to us today. Um, if you want to encourage a friend, be willing to believe Philippians 1.6 on their behalf. Here's a third dimension, inward. To en encourage a friend, you assess your feelings, inward feelings, and as you assess those inward feelings, you express love. Paul says this, it's right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of, with, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you see how he uses the word feelings in there? It's right for me to feel this way. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with affection. 
Like, these are serious emotions that are coming out of the heart of the Apostle Paul. If you're going to love a friend well, if you're going to encourage them well, you have to convey emotions. I know that some of you probably are thinking, not my wheelhouse, not my gift. And again, what I would say to you is, the pattern of Christ is that you get in touch with the emotions inside of love for friends and express those outwardly. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock your heart up in a safe, in, in a, in, in a safe uh, lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. What Paul is modeling is that those of us who want to encourage friends must begin to assess our inward feelings toward those friends and then express those feelings outward. You go back, you go back to this verse. Do you suppose the people who read this in Philippi squirmed a little bit? Suppose any of the macho guys in Philippi said, ooh, yearn for me. No, I'm not, I'm not sure I want to hear that. Uh, feel this way about you. Oh, Paul, don't deal with feelings with me. Maybe, maybe they did. But it was right for Paul to do that because, because that's what growing followers of Christ do. They're in touch with their emotions and they convey love. Listen to how David conveyed love for Jonathan. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. This is Jonathan died in battle. And David is singing a song of lament about his best friend. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, there have been people who've tried to take this and, and read um, homosexual love into it. If you know the culture, you know that's impossible. What David means, means is this. In the ancient world, marriages were contractually arranged. If you were a young husband or a young bride, you did not marry the person you fell in love with. It was arranged by your parents. It was contractually arranged. And so many times, you did not marry your best friend. You did not marry the person you were romantically inclined to love. You married somebody who you had to learn to love. And what David is saying there is your love was extraordinarily because it was chosen. I chose to love you as my best friend. Jonathan, you chose to love me as your best friend. It was a chosen love. And David is using remarkable language to talk about the depths of his love for his best friend. He's conscious of those feelings. He expresses those feelings, even though that sounds a bit awkward to us to say it that way. Sometimes love expressed is awkward because you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable to the person that you, that you care for. So here's the point. If you get in touch with those feelings and you express them, you will be a conduit 
of encouragement. Now, these days, the Lord has, has encouraged me to do this in, in three areas. Number one, I do it with Cindy. I do it with Cindy. And uh, sometimes I go maybe a little over the top in conveying my love for my wife. Over the top because um, I, I, I want her to know what I'm genuinely feeling inside. But guess what? The more I express my love for her, my affection, my gratitude for her, guess what happens inside my, 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 my soul? I, I feel more joyful about her. There's science behind this. Gratitude changes the brain. It rewires the brain on a neuronal level. The little synapses in your brain change. Little, little neural pathways change as you express gratitude. I'm doing this with my wife. I desire to have a great relationship with her. I'm trying to do this with my kids, writing notes of encouragement. I'm trying to do this with my in-law children, trying to find ways of encouraging them as well. I'm doing this with people who have influenced my kids. Um, I'm trying to do this with people outside my family. In other words, the Lord is convicting me to make this a core foundational discipline of my life. And the result, the result is joy, encouragement and joy. And we come to the final dimension, the upward dimension, to encourage a friend, engage in intercessory prayer. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so, that, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you think when the Philippians heard what he was praying, they were encouraged? I think they were. I think they were. What I've done with this verse is I've said, okay, so I want to be aware of the people in my life whom God is asking me to pray for. So there have been times where spontaneously the Lord would convict me to pray of a certain person. I would take out my phone and, and, and I, would, I would text them, hey, the Lord brought you to mind today. Here's what I'm praying for you. And at first, about 50% of the time, the people would say, that's exactly what I needed today. Thank you. And then it was like 75% of the time, that's what they would say. I thought, awesome. I feel like maybe I'm hearing from the Lord about how to specifically pray for somebody else. That's the cool thing about this discipline. You start praying intercessory prayers, getting into that discipline, and the Lord will convict you specifically about how to pray for that person you're interceding for. Now, <clears throat> a number of years ago, um, I was in the home of one of our small group leaders, uh, and I had written a thank you note, and that thank you note was up on their refrigerator. That's not a picture of the thank you note. I don't use those pens. But, um, but the note was up on the refrigerator. And I said to this person, I said, I mean, I had written this note like eight weeks ago, and it was still up in this person's refrigerator. And I said, so, just out of curiosity, why is the note up there? I said, thanks for putting it up there, but, 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 but why? This person said, it is the only encouraging note I have received all year. And I wanted to remember what it felt like to be encouraged. 
And that, that clued me in to the idea that people desire encouragement. They crave encouragement. So um, I wrote an encouraging letter to my son and daughter-in-law. And uh, my son took a picture of the letter. And there's a little grandson, like, touchdown, touchdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Took a picture of the letter saying, Dad, thanks for the note of encouragement. Thanks for the note of encouragement. You want to encourage somebody, you look back. That's dimension number one. Remember the good things in the past. You look forward and stand on God's promise for the future. You look inside, you assess the love, and you express it. And then you look up, you intercede before the Father. I'm going to close in prayer, but I want to have a moment of silence. We'll turn the lights down low just for a second. And I want you to get a picture of a person in your mind right now whom you need to encourage. Just get that, that, that person's a picture of their face in their mind whom you need to encourage. And I just, I just want you to commit this week to express encouragement to that person. Write it, text it, email it, however you want to do it. Get a picture in your mind of somebody that you need to encourage and then commit to do that this week. Let's stand for our closing prayer. Father in heaven, um, we thank you that we are mightily encouraged by the resurrected Christ. We are mightily encouraged by our indwelling Holy Spirit, by our Heavenly Father. Lord, may we be conduits of, of encouragement out in the world. We pray this, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our prayer team is going to be up here. They'd love to pray for you about anything going on in your life. And hope you have a great Sunday afternoon.